From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Globally, 2023 was a year of extreme heat. Locally, meteorologist Mike Nelson calls this the year of hail. I have a couple of friends that are in the roofing business, and they've never seen anything like this. There are roofs that are still waiting for shingles, part of its supply chain stuff. Part of it was just big hailstorms going through the area. We also look ahead and even way ahead as Nelson thinks about the climate future for his grandchildren. Then one Colorado kid had this Christmas wish. Um, bike. A bike. His mom also had a wish that her son might see himself in Santa. I just want to have the experience for my youngest. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield searches for diverse St. Nick's. Who doesn't love a good buy one, get one free deal? Employer matching gift programs are kind of like that. They can turn a $100 gift into a $200 gift. Typically, a matching gift request just needs to be registered within the calendar year the donation was made. So even if you donated months ago, you could still double your gift and increase your investment in CPR. Start now at CPR.org slash gift match. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. 2023 will go down in the record books as a year of extreme weather, global temperatures included. The question is, how quickly will those records fall as we head into 2024? Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson is back for our regular discussion. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ryan. Always great to be with you. We are one week from the official start of winter the shortest day of the year, the 21st. How are we trending when it comes to the weather Colorado typically experiences this time of year? As we get close to the end of the year, we are, of course, about to embark on a big warming spell through the weekend into the first few days of winter. The 7- to 10-day outlook is for readings to be well above normal, not just here in Colorado, but all across the lower 48 states. Uh, as the jet stream is bending a little bit farther to the north right now, and it's going to allow the warmer air to come up from the south. So it's not going to feel much like winter for next week. We're talking highs in the 50s and low 60s for the Denver area. Put that into some context for us. Have you seen something like that before? Yep. The average high temperature is about 42 this time of year. Two years ago, we had that very warm December, and of course, that led up to the Marshall Fire. This year, we've been a little more fortunate in that we've had some moisture. Uh, as a matter of fact, as we stand, Denver is about at 19 inches of precipitation, if you will, a mix of rain and melted snow for the year, which is about three inches above average for us. So that's a good wet year. And we certainly had a lot of very good wet weather over the spring and summer. So we're not quite in the same position we were when we had the Marshall Fire, but this kind of warmth is unusual for the third week of December. Let's talk a bit about snowpack. I understand levels are close to average across much of western Colorado, which includes the crucial Colorado River Basin. Uh, what can you tell us about what average means and the outlook for more snow? Well, we have a, an El Nino winter going on right now. And what that means for us is a pretty strong west to east jet stream flow that has already resulted in a couple of good dumping storms 
in the mountains. Typically, that type of a flow doesn't give us a lot of moisture on the plains because the mountains are very efficient at intercepting that jet stream moisture. And so they've had some good snows up there. We're off to a pretty decent start. As far as the outlook for the winter, it's milder, but also fairly moist. So I think we may be looking at a, a decent mountain snowpack again this year. On the plains, less in the way of cold outbreaks. Maybe we'll catch a, a good low pressure system or two. I will remind people that El Nino winters have included 1982 when we had the Christmas blizzard, 1997 when we had the October blizzard, and 2003 when we had the March blizzard. So we can get a big one during an El Nino winter, but the main thing is we typically don't get a lot of really cold air. Bit of a different picture in southern Colorado's Sangre de Cristo and San Juan Mountains. Federal climatologists recently pointing to those two regions as national standouts for snow drought. Why is that? Just the track of the storms, a northwesterly flow, which is what has dumped the snow up around Steamboat, doesn't favor the wet mountains and the Sangres. But as we speak this morning, there is a low pressure area that has just moved through there and has brought good moisture in the last 48 hours as it moved across New Mexico and into the panhandle of Texas. So this most recent storm did favor that area as well as southeastern Colorado, and that was great news for them. I mentioned in our introduction weather records this year. One I can't get out of my mind is that giant hailstone that fell in early August in Yuma County on the Eastern Plains, official diameter five and a quarter inches, although it was probably larger and melted yeah. some before it could be verified. I guess I think, too, of one of the suburban tornadoes of Red Rocks and folks being pelted by hail this year. What stands out to you? In terms of weather extremes in 23? Absolutely the hail. Um, I have a couple of friends that are in the roofing business, and they said they've never seen anything like this in their careers. And there are roofs that are still waiting for shingles. Part of it's supply chain stuff. And part of it was just week after week, just big hailstorms going through the area. We had a wet spring and summer here, and that featured a lot of thunderstorm activity, and the front range gets a lot of hailstorms. We're higher up, we're closer to the cold air loft, we get the thunderstorm activity, and we can get the large hail, and this year, probably the most in the 33 years I've been in Colorado forecasting, this is the, the year of the hail. What about temperatures, Mike? Because that 107 in Grand Junction is also stuck in my craw. Denver area, we did not have, if unless I'm mistaken, there might have been one, any triple-digit temperatures this year, partly because we had a lot of thunderstorms, a lot of clouds around, mm -hmm. but very hot out west, and globally, this will be the hottest year on record. Uh, once that El Nino kicked in, that takes a lot of the heat that's been in the Pacific Ocean water and releases it back into the atmosphere, and so this year hottest on record globally. Next year, if that El Nino continues, probably will beat this past year for the hottest on record. We are right now at about 420 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. At the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it was 280 parts per million. And each one of those little molecules of CO2 is very effective at trapping heat, redirecting it back down and warming the planet. 
And it, it's not a political thing. It's basic thermodynamics. Add heat, it gets warmer. Well, thermodynamics were fundamental to the global climate summit known as COP28, which is wrapped up this week. There's a deal to transition away from fossil fuels, but not without a lot of pushback. The goal is to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Nearly 200 countries agreed to this, including the U.S., but there is criticism that the deal is weak, contains a lot of loopholes for the fossil fuel industry fails to make bold moves to urgently cut carbon emissions. What's your take on COP28? Progress is good. We've made some progress. Are we making it fast enough? I don't think so. We've known the threat of greenhouse gases and warming the planet for decades, and we have squandered a lot of time. But we are making gradual progress. You know, fossil fuels are going to be around for a long time because the system is built in that way. And uh, I am optimistic when I see the costs of renewables tumbling. Battery storage is improving greatly. We are getting there, but sadly, I think we're getting there too slowly to really solve the problem in our children's lifetime, in my grandchildren's lifetime. But I think we still can fix it. And I remain optimistic that we can fix this. There were good steps taken. As I always say, the physical science is easy, add heat, get warmer. The political science of what to do about it, that's a tougher haul. What do you think of when you think of your grandchildren in the face of climate change? Well, initially, when you say what I think of, I think of they're sticky, but I love them. <laughs> But they're getting less <laughs> sticky as they get older. The problems that they will face and that future generations will face uh, are really going to be manifest much greater. We've kind of had a little bit of a um, a grace period, if you will, mm. in uh, our lifetimes. But I think that by the time my grandchildren are my age, this is going to be a major issue that we will unfortunately leave to our heirs. And that's uh, bad on us for not being better about it. I won't call it a sticky issue. I'm, I'm gonna... <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Ryan, it's always a pleasure. And since we won't chat until next month, happy holidays, everyone. Our monthly chat with Mike Nelson, chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He's written the world's littlest book on climate, which lobs 10 facts in 10 minutes about carbon dioxide. We'll link to a free download at CPR.org slash Colorado Matters. When we come back, how schools are responding to an unexpected influx of new students to the state and making sure they feel welcome. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Migrant children, more than 2,200 of them, have landed in Denver's classrooms. Some schools struggle to meet their needs. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine spent time at one that's more prepared than most for these new arrivals, but even it has challenges. That's math intervention happening there. 
and then behind him is reading intervention. So I'm talking about creative use of spaces. Principal Nadia Madan Moro points to what used to be just a library. Yeah, we're working on trying to get something to break up the sound because it's noisy in there right now. Every bit of space in PlaceBridge Academy is full right now. The school's designed to serve immigrants and refugees, but even this school wasn't quite prepared for the influx. Frankly, in schools, we were really caught off guard. Over 100 more students than it expected showed up this fall. At the beginning, we had a lot of students and not enough teachers. Literacy teacher Carmen Curi says the teachers who spoke Spanish could right away start modeling behaviors, teaching students how the U.S. school system works. But when the kids went to classes like art or PE, teachers who didn't speak Spanish, with over 30 kids in a class. Things were going crazy. Some teachers were overwhelmed because they didn't know how to communicate and they didn't understand the background of the students. Two teachers have quit. It was too much. School leaders quickly realized they'd not only need new teachers, but would have to reconfigure classes because something was different about many of the new students. Our students that are newly arrived from Venezuela, many of them have had very long journeys to get here, about two years to get here. So we have some students that have never been in school. We have some students that haven't been in school for several years. This meant a lot of changes in hiring, in programs offered, how spaces were used. These children had more psychological and physical needs. Some teachers found themselves buying more boots and clothes for children than they typically do. Still to be solved is staffing a crowded lunchroom. It's been an all-hands-on-deck type of a situation that's required a lot of flexibility and out-of-the-box thinking. School leaders hustled using every connection they had and hired five more teachers, most from Spanish-speaking countries. Third-grade teacher Renee Norris Fernandez, who is newly hired from Mexico, goes over double-digit addition with students in Spanish. Research shows the more kids get up to speed academically in their first language, the more quickly they'll learn English. But students in this bilingual class have extra challenges. A student works on the sounds, ba, be, be, bo, boo. He's nine years old. The classroom maid says he's new to the country, from Venezuela, and has never been to school before, doesn't know how to read. Here's Norris Fernandez. He says many children don't know letters or the sounds of letters. Many move from city to city in other countries, their parents working long hours, and they often couldn't go to school. But today, every kid is busy working at tables, helping each other, and learning. You're welcome, sweets. In the hallway, a staff member pushes a cart distributing a donation of 900 gloves and hats. What's up, Gingy? One hat, one pair of gloves, guys. The basic needs of families are tremendous. Some kids live in shelters. The Denver Health Clinic at the school has a wait list for students needing mental health services. Seventh and eighth grade teacher Janet Taggart says her students have told her about dead bodies they saw or the places they feared snakes on their journey here. All my students can trace on the map and tell you the route that they took and how many months it took them to walk here. 13-year-old Ashley, with long curly brown hair, arrived from Venezuela in September. She tells me about walking along highways and in jungles and taking buses. 
She says one time in Mexico, the bus made a detour and they were handed over to people who told them pay or be detained or kidnapped. She says the jungle part was easy. She and her brother walked faster than her mom, who worried she'd lose sight of them. But Ashley says indigenous people watched out for them. She says thanks goes to God protecting her family from kidnappers. She says the journey changed her. Before, she was afraid to go through places like that. Not now. She feels braver. Ashley laughs a lot. She's made friends and says the teachers are always there for students. She doesn't always understand class, but tries to catch a bit here and there and then get the gist of the topic. Ashley has big goals. She wants to be a pediatrician. She knows she'll have to work hard to reach her goal. And her teacher, Janet Taggart, knows well the level of English her students will need even to succeed in high school. I feel such a strong need to help them move and push them to get as much as they can in the one year that they have newcomer support. You see, students like Ashley are in the newcomer program. That gives them extra supports for one year. Newcomers are students who've had interrupted schooling and also limited skills in both English and their native language. There were so many Spanish speakers this year, they had to split Taggart's class in two and create a new bilingual newcomers class. You will have your headphones on. They will be talking in English, but the words will be in Swahili or in French or in Spanish. Taggart switches into Spanish to make sure everyone understands. The students are quiet, watching the video, taking in every clue to help them understand. When we talk about the harvest feast and what happens in 1621... Then they get to play it again on their laptops, reading in their first language. Taggart checks for comprehension. It's unclear how many students will stay at the school. Some have already left after their families found more permanent housing farther away. But for those here now... Good morning, Roadrunners. Happy Friday. Today is November 17th. They're happy, eager, and grateful to be in a safe place as they learn new things like the lunch menu. The lunch menu is broccoli and cheese potatoes, TV and Twelve-year-old Renzo from Venezuela hopes he stays at the school. He doesn't have big goals for now. He says he's just happy to be with his family, play baseball, to be here for a new life. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a question about Santa Claus that's close to the heart for my co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Give the gift of Colorado this holiday season and support small businesses with CPR's Local Gift Guide. I'm Lauren Antonoff-Hart. And I'm arts reporter Eden Lane. Check out CPR's list of Colorado gift ideas, from special activities to shops where you can find weird but delightful surprises for your upcoming gift exchange. There's also a list of holiday markets that offer you a way to celebrate Colorado artisans. The Local Gift Guide is at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Now for a story that's 11 years in the making. Well, kind of. 
It all started with a question. You posted online that you were looking for Black Santa in Colorado. Tell us about that. I just relocated from Atlanta, Georgia this past March, and we had our second son in April. I just wanted to have the experience from my youngest, the one that was just born, because I did that with my first son, my oldest son. Being in Colorado, I've it's been an adjustment, I would say, coming from Atlanta, Georgia. And it's just a challenge to find a lot of things for Black people here. That's Artesia Kabore, wife and mom of two young kiddos, who now calls Parker home. She posted the question in an online group for Black parents here in Colorado in early November, well before the holiday frenzy got underway. So I knew this mom meant business. It immediately transported me back in time to just more than a decade ago, when I had just relocated to Colorado with my husband. It was our soon-to-be one-year-old second Christmas. The first one had mostly been spent bleary-eyed in the fog of the seemingly endless newborn parent drill. Change, feed, burp, repeat. But this year was different. Our son was walking and alert, and as a longtime photo fanatic, I was ready to kick off an annual holiday tradition. Our boy taking a pic with St. Nick. So I too asked, where do I find a black Santa Claus in Colorado? I checked around and I'll spare you the details, but let's just say that despite my mama bear dogged determination, I never found him. I was deflated. You see, growing up as a little African-American girl in the deep South, the mall stances were always white. They looked nothing like my dad, my grandfather, or my uncles. But by the time I made it to high school, it had changed. Black Santas were a thing, and I knew it was a tradition I'd like to participate in when I had a family of my own. But as an adult here in Colorado, I soon learned that would be tricky. To this day, my children, now fast approaching the tween years, have never actually seen a Black Santa in the flesh. Well, besides that time someone's uncle dressed up at a local library event. But there was no whimsical photo backdrop or ornate chair. And a professional photographer? Not even close. So that brought me back to Mama Bear Artesia and her two little cubs, seven-month-old Elijah and four-year-old Matisse. Maybe I could make it right for them and do what I could never accomplish for my own fellas, find Black Santa. Once I talked to Matisse, I knew I had to try. Matisse, look, can you tell my friend what you wrote to Santa? You see, he's got a pretty specific request for the Jolly One this year. Um, bike. A bike? Is it going to be a big bike or a small bike? Um, a big bike? You want Santa to bring you a bike? Yeah. Yeah. After hearing that sweet little plea and armed with some sobering data, a national survey found that less than 5% of professional Santas in the country are of color. Off to find Black Santa in Colorado, I went. I asked around and eventually ended up here. It's a nippy Sunday morning in the Denver Tech Center area. Outside, snowflakes are drifting from the sky. Inside, my favorite Christmas album of all time, Jackson 5 Christmas, is blaring through a giant speaker in a hotel ballroom. I'll 
Black children decked out in holiday finery are sprinkled around the room, chowing down on a brunch of pancakes, sausage-linked scrambled eggs, and hot chocolate with sprinkles. Fresh batches of cotton candy are being spun in the back. Yes, basically kid heaven, a real wonderland. The place is also packed with parents who also are determined to give their children the gift of diverse representation this Christmas. I scan the room and then... I spot him, up front, on a small stage, seated upon a regal throne. It's a real black Santa in the flesh, a mocha-hued Mrs. Claus sitting alongside him. I'm totally fangirling out, and the kids there, well, they're giddy. And getting down to business. Hey, how are you? What's your name? Christopher. Uh, Christopher, what do you want for Christmas? Okay. Do you want the racetrack with the loopy loops or just or just a Hot Wheels set? The Shark Hot Wheels set. Black Santa and Mrs. Claus wouldn't give up their other names, but they both say it brings them joy to represent diversity in their roles. It is wonderful. This is our passion. This is our joy to be able to share just a little bit of Christmas magic every single year. What about you, Mrs. Claus? We really get a joy out of seeing the kids' face. And, you know, and it's especially important that they see a Santa and a Mrs. Claus that they can relate to. That, that's very important. It is important, as Mrs. Claus said, for our children, specifically our children, black and blind children, to be able to see someone that looks like them. Because so many times in the public view, they don't get to see positive characters that look like them, that can talk like them, that can relate to them. So it's very, very, very important that we minister the way that we do. What do you have to add to that? There was a few adults that we've come across, and they are especially surprised to see a brown and Mr. and Mrs. Santa Claus. Well, as I'm paying attention more closely, not only are you Mrs. Claus, but Mrs. Claus with locks. Yes, I love my natural hair, and at first I was going to try to hide it, but no. And I was glad to see a lot of the people here also have locks. So, yes, I'm proud to be a Mrs. Claus with locks. This Santa Soiree is hosted by the South Suburban Denver chapter of Jack and Jill of America, a leadership organization African-American mothers founded during the Great Depression era to create social and civic outlets for their children. Colorado has three chapters. Event chair Katrina Little is beaming as she strolls around the room. A mom herself, she says she was determined to open the event back up to the general public this year after it went private during the COVID pandemic because she believes diverse Santas matter. How would you describe the significance of this event? It brings it home. It brings everything home. Um, Being able to be in a safe space where you feel welcomed, you feel seen, and you see yourself in the eyes of every child, in the eyes of Santa, in the eyes of all the aunties and uncles that are present, it's a place that we call home. Attendee Marlena Ware and her 8- and 10-year-old sons, Maxwell and Marvin, agree wholeheartedly. The whole experience has just been great. Was this something you were seeking out? 
Oh, absolutely. Why is it important to you? Well, I think representation matters. So for our children to be able to see people in different roles, such as Santa, that look like them, I think is important. They need to be able to have that exposure. Was it something you grew up with? No, it's not. Did you grow up here? I grew up here in Colorado, yes. I very rarely, if ever, saw a black Santa. Her boys aren't necessarily easily impressed, but even they admit seeing a black Santa who looks like one of their own family members is extra cool. Um, it was actually kind of friendly, I would have to say. Um, I think it was good because, like, I like my dad, I like my uncle, and I am, I like my family members. So it kind of felt, like, comfortable to you? Yes. First-timer's mom, Maria Ware, and her nine-year-old daughter are equally impressed. So I am a Christian believer, and I believe that God created us in His image. And so for me, when I think of Santa or when I think of anything or anyone, um, representation is important because um, we can't be what we can't see. And to say that this uh, meaning of Christmas should look a certain way and Santa Claus should look a certain way just doesn't align with what I was raised to believe my whole life, which is we are made in the image of God. And so why shouldn't Santa look like me? My daughter's name is Aria Ware. So what do you think about this event with Santa? Fun. What makes it fun? Everything. Teens Maya, Trinity, Kaylee, and Jeremiah are volunteering today. They say they grew up attending this Black Santa event, and it's made a big impression. Uh, it's fantastic because if you see Santa on a Coca-Cola bottle, they're going to be white. You don't really see a Black Santa anywhere. Same as like a Black Jesus. Uh, I think it's good to have a Black Santa to really... A show like especially little kids because at a young age I know a lot of media only portrays like white people as the main focus so I feel like it's good for little kids to see themselves like in like these big like holidays like especially as Santa and like Christmas and like Christmas is a big deal for kids and it really shapes a lot of like kids like childhoods and I think it's good for them to see somebody who looks like them in like this such a uh, fantastic position as Santa. For Denver school board member Ayante Anderson not so much. He says growing up in Colorado, he'd always crave seeing a Santa who looked like him. Now, as a father himself, he's doing his part to make that happen. Although he didn't necessarily initially view himself as the Santa type, Ayante says he jumped into the role without hesitation years ago when he was asked to volunteer at a community toy drive and photo op hosted by Brother Jeff's Cultural Center located on Denver's historic Welton Street. It turned out to be a big hit. The line was wrapped around the block with families of all backgrounds waiting to take pics with Black Santa. And that first year, his attire was, well, let's just say unique. Um, we didn't have time to go get a Santa suit, so um, utilized uh, some Nike gear and uh, wore a Nike track suit um, with some Air Force Ones and threw on the Santa beard and hat. And we made it uh, happen, uh, made, made do with what we could. And definitely uh, some of the kids uh, were excited to see a Santa that was representative of from their community. Some of the older kids didn't fall for it um, because of the lack of the suit. But most of our younger children definitely um, love the idea of seeing a Santa that looked like them. Um, and even their, you know, their first questions, some of them were, you know, I thought Santa was uh, was white. Why does Santa look like me? And so it's always good to be able to celebrate our diversity. 
The free toy giveaway in Pictures with Black Santa is happening again this year at Brother Jeff's. And yes, he's ready to reprise his role, getting his lines together, and he even upgraded his gear to a more traditional look. Now I got to get the ho, 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 and the Merry Christmas. <laughs> okay, that wasn't expecting that. Uh, <laughs> you got you to get into character, right? I, I got to, yeah, I got to get into character. Was Again, wasn't expecting that. Um, let's, let's try it. <laughs> ho, 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 Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all. There we go. But seriously, finding a Blanta, as some of my fellow Black Santa enthusiasts have nicknamed him, got me wondering, what other diverse representations of Santa exist here? Indigenous? Asian? And what about Santas for the kiddos out there who don't speak English? Or those who don't speak at all? Well, the good news is that I found them. Most of them, anyway. Angelo Mendez has been the bilingual Latine Santa for three years now at the annual Camp Christmas event being held this year in Aurora. Well, I mean, I, I'm in the traditional suit, but we've emphasized, at least to my elves, <laughs> before they come up, I will listen to them, basically, and see and, and listen to their parents. Sometimes their parents will come up, and they'll be speaking Spanish, trying to position them, of course, with photos. So then I, I, will, I will begin to speak Spanish to them. And a lot of them are really surprised <laughs> and uh, very happy. The, the parents seem pretty elated, the fact that I speak Spanish. And the fact that I can uh, basically uh, talk to them, you know, in, in, in their own language, a lot, a lot of the, especially the, the newer immigrants that come to the United States. Usually what I try to do is, is emphasize the fact that they need to also give on the holiday. And I specifically ask them to make sure they give big hugs to their parents because they're my, they're my best elves. Along with a white Santa this year, Camp Christmas also has a black Santa and has even had an ASL-speaking Santa in the past. So kids who are hearing impaired may share their Christmas list via American Sign Language. How cool is that? Communications manager Brittany Gutierrez says they don't go out of their way to tip off guests about which one to expect at the photo display on a given day. Unless they ask, because they want kids of all backgrounds to experience a diverse mix of Santas. Same story at Stanley Marketplace, also in Aurora. It has its own mix of Santas, including Black and Latino ones. Assistant General Manager Aaron Street says the diversity has been greatly appreciated. We've received Facebook messages and Instagram messages alike, just applauding our efforts and thanking us for providing Santas of all different kinds. And when you think about it, finding brown Santa just makes sense. Latinos are the second largest racial or ethnic group in Colorado, making up 22% of our state's population. One way Stanley Marketplace paid homage to the culture this year included hosting a mariachi band performance one Saturday near the Santa display. Mariachi Santa. Hmm, that's got a nice ring to it. Yes, Christmas for the culture. Feliz Navidad. Love it. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Prospero año y felicidad. Now, finding Asian Santa, though, that was a different story. For him, I had to dig deeper and search harder. Then, 
I finally found him. His alias is Peter Trent, and his cover, if you will, is working as a character actor in productions across Colorado. Because, you know, Santa can't just go around letting everyone know what he really does for a living. (laughs) Peter, I mean, Santa, says interacting with kiddos and posing for pics at the Winter Wonderland event being held this weekend in Aurora is the role of a lifetime. Something that would have meant the world to him growing up as an Asian kid in Colorado. Yeah, it's an honor. I mean, I hold it in high regard. I think about how I would feel if I ever saw that. I mean, I'm 41 years old, and this will be the first time for me seeing an Asian Santa, and it will be me. You know, so I I, I can't wait. I think I think a lot of people are going to be surprised. You know, and then kind of think about what that means that they're so surprised. So it's care and it's 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 honor. I think it's really amazing. This is your first Asian Santa and you're 41. What would that have meant to you as a kid to have seen an Asian representation of Santa? <sighs> a representation is so important and it is always a a reach for inclusion. You know, and I think growing up in Denver as an Asian American, you you kind of just sink into the shadows and you say you say, okay, you you don't feel as an active member of the community. Like you're just an observer because nothing about you is represented in what you see in cult mainstream culture and media. And being able to break that and be able to see an Asian Santa, I think as a kid would have really helped me in my career, first of all. I mean, I've acted my whole life, but I didn't start getting cast until college, you know? So even my career was always this thing that I wanted, even though I saw nobody like me doing it, I just kind of had to rest in this knowing. It would have been such a great leg up for me, my career, to be like, oh, this this is an avenue. This is... And we matter, you know, that we matter instead of just being expected to be this quiet part of society. The Asian Santa event is a dream realized for organizer Annie Guo Van Dan. She's the president of Asian Avenue Magazine, a publication that highlights Colorado's Asian community. And she also serves as the executive director of the Colorado Asian Culture and Education Network. But first and foremost, she too is a mama bear with three kiddos under the age of six, driven by a deep desire to ensure that her own children grow up seeing a Santa who looks like them. So this is the second year we're hosting Winter Wonderland. And the goal of the event is really to provide Asian young people and families the opportunity to see themselves and increase in the cultural pride and visibility. And so the activities at the event are not necessarily Asian focused. So we're doing things like face painting or bouncy houses and crafts the same way that they would get at any other Winter Wonderland event. But what makes it unique is that it is focused on our community. And this is an opportunity for us to create a space that does not exist in Denver. And this is only the second year of the event, you know, so prior to the last year, you know, we didn't have this at all. And I think 
a lot of us growing up now as Asian Americans, um, our parents were the immigrant generation. They came and we talk a lot about how they were just in survival mode for us, you know, raising us here and having a lot of the language and cultural barriers in a way that now as Asian Americans, parents, <laughs> you know, now that we are parents, we have a different situation than, you know, our parents as the immigrants, you know, we don't have the same struggle with like the language and we really want to kind of create more spaces for our kids. And as much as the event is for the kiddos, she believes it's just as impactful for the adults. So part of it is kind of this dual feeling of you're almost doing it for your parents too, um, to give them kind of what they had wished, you know, we had, right? And then also doing it now for our kids, like hoping that future generations don't have to experience that same sense of kind of denial of our identities because we never saw ourselves. And so it's kind of like an homage to <laughs> both our parents and like a contribution for our kids. Unfortunately, I never found Indigenous Santa. But if you know of one here in Colorado, please let us know. If he exists, I suspect there's a pretty persistent parent or advocate who made that happen. So back to the Kobore family in Parker. In case you're wondering whether Mom Artesia ever got to fulfill her Christmas wish of finding Black Santa for her little Black sons, Elijah and Matisse. She did. Turns out that Black Santa from the Jack and Jill event also managed to fit in a short stint this season working the photo display at Denver's Cherry Creek Mall before he had to head back to the North Pole to get ready for the big day. And Mom made sure to get the money shots. Pictures of both of her sons with St. Nick. Check. As for little Matisse, he didn't hesitate getting down to business during his visit with Santa. He officially put in his request for that bike he wants. And not just any bike. What'd you ask Santa for? Um, bike. A bike? What color bike? Black. Black? You think he'll bring one? Yeah. I think so, too. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. You better watch out. I guess he'll have to wait until Christmas morning to find out if Black Santa delivered. My co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Check out the Colorado Matters page at CPR.org later today for some fun photos of the diverse Santas she found. We'll also have links to events where you can find them. Be right back with the old family traditions behind a new Denver restaurant. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's alpine tundra is most visible in Rocky Mountain National Park, above 11,400 feet. It's a spectacular environment, but cold and severe. Still, life persists. The firs and pines at the edge of the tundra look more like shrubs, stunted and gnarled from frequent exposure to icy hurricane force winds. And they may take a hundred years to gain a mere inch in diameter. Above timberline, many flowering plants have dense hairs to protect against the cold. The largest of these is the alpine sunflower, also known as the old man of the mountain for the white hairs covering it. For 10 long years, it stores energy in its roots, and then it blooms, but only once. As the writer Ann Zwinger wrote, 
The Alpine tundra is a land of contrast and incredible intensity, with the skies the size of forever and the flowers the size of a millisecond. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of National Jewish Health. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. As many restaurants battled pandemic slowdowns, a husband and wife team built their dream, a fast casual spot in Denver's Baker's neighbor, Baker neighborhood, that is, brimming with heritage. CPR's Eden Lane takes us to Mac Fam. Like many big dreams, this busy new eatery took time, hard work, and early planning to come to life. It started as a New York City area pop-up, then a Denver food hall concept before opening fully in November. I've always wanted to open a restaurant. Doris Yoon runs the restaurant with her husband, Kenneth Wan. And when Ken and I first started dating, I asked him, because I knew he was a chef, and I asked him, are you interested in opening up your own restaurant one day? Yeah, I was only cooking professionally up to like, well, maybe like four years at that point. It was just me always in the back of my head that, yeah, that I would want to open a restaurant one day, but more so like, what would it be? What would it look like? Kind of like all those, all those details, you know, and I will say Doris definitely played a role in helping me flesh out those details, giving me a more direction as to where to take my culinary skills. The couple started by participating in food markets and events in one of the most competitive culinary markets, New York City. In 2015, they became vendors at the Queen's Food Night Market as Hong Kong French Toast. And from that point on, it kind of it gave us a taste of what it feels like to be our own boss and run our own business, having our own ideas, you know, planning it and then having it come to fruition. That led the couple to explore their savory side and create Meta Asian Kitchen. Success there convinced the couple to quit their jobs and move to Denver to open their own restaurant. So what made you choose Denver? If you were in Jersey City and Manhattan, why Denver? We, we always loved Denver. Like, I, I personally like, like the atmosphere of Denver. New York's a good place to build and grow your career. But as far as like an end game is concerned, like buying a house or you know, like raising a family, like it's, it's really expensive. After moving to Denver, they quickly built a following at the collective eatery Avante Food and Beverage in Lohai. Today, at Mac Pham, their menu is Chinese food inspired by family recipes and childhood memories. Kenneth Wan's mother's braised pork belly dish was the launch pad. Um, something I ate growing up, I would always ask her to make it all the time. It was something that I really wanted, wanted to eat. The couple stresses that their menu isn't traditional Chinese food, but a riff on their family recipes. Doris Yoon's family dishes also inspire the menu, but for her, all the details of Mac Pham are personal and a response to childhood. When we were creating this restaurant, I told Ken, I'm like, I want to showcase all of the Chinese elements that make me who I am and that I'm very proud of. The little Chinese girl in me that always got made fun of for being too Chinese is now being, <laughs> you know, praised and... People are telling me like, oh, it looks great here. Like, I totally understand what you're trying to do here. So it feels really good. Tell me about the name, Mac Pham. M-A-K is the acronym for Meta Asian Kitchen. That was our name at Avanti. And then Pham is the incorporation of family. Um, a lot of our recipes are family inspired. They're tradition inspired. Doris's mom helps us work. My, my mom is integral in some of the recipes. We use our family as a baseline for when we are in D. Uh, we'll make something, Doris's mom, Doris's dad will taste it, they'll give us their opinions. 
I, I lean on my mom and my dad for recipes. So family is a, is a very big part of our operation. Yeah, and our tiger logo is actually representative of our daughter, Autumn. She was born in the year of the tiger. So that's why you'll see like our logo for MacFam is actually a little tiger. And the Chinese name for our restaurant called Siu Fu Tong means little tiger place or little tiger restaurant. This is basically our gift to her. <laughs> she doesn't know that it's our gift to her, but you know, we're building this life. With a strong focus on family, the couple focused on hiring staff who share their values and care about the food and hospitality. Running and owning a restaurant's hard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's completely consumed my life. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I love every minute of it. You know, I just, I just want people to know um, that uh, we care. And everyone that comes in here, we will always give them uh, the same grace. Mac Pham is located on First and Broadway in Denver. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. Be sure to tune in Monday for the 8th annual Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, recorded earlier this month in front of a live audience. You'll hear holiday memories, comedy, and lots of music. That includes our headliner, Emelise Munoz. She's an 18-year-old guitar major at Denver School of the Arts. And in addition to performing a Christmas favorite, the aspiring singer-songwriter had an original for us. I have been really in love with my song, A Jar of Stars. It's a song that I wrote about um, letting those worries kind of wash away and be present in the moment, because that's something I'm always trying to work on. We've been through the heart of it all, so for now, let's sit on the moon. Elise Munoz of Denver with A Jar of Stars. Hear more from her on Monday's Colorado Matters as we bring you our eighth annual holiday extravaganza. And that's our show for today with thanks to these stars. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.